Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. One of uh, one of the things I love about worship is that. Let me come back with me. Come back with me here. One of these things that I love about worship is that there are two things happening in the room, and one of them is deeply personal. Even though you're here with a couple hundred other people or whatever it is in the room, it's deeply personal where there's this moment you can connect via the Holy Spirit with the Father. And it's like, it doesn't just happen in Cape and it doesn't just happen on Sundays. It happens wherever we like open our eyes and recognize the fact that God is real and alive and moving and doing what he wants to do. So it's deeply personal, but it's also not. It's also deep, deeply corporate, meaning like that there's a bunch of other people in the room. And so it's almost like you're a part of, you show up here and you're a part of a symphony. It's like you're the flute, but there's all these other instruments that are going on. And so there's also this beautiful, I don't know, it's, it's like you're a part of a tapestry, a small little piece with all these other instruments that get to do it too. So it's, it's so cool that we get, I get a moment with the Lord in worship, but I also, if I lower my voice, a little bit, I also hear all of your instruments singing out your praises, and that, that like, I don't know, it encourages me in the faith, too. I just want to remind you of that. What a beautiful mix of those two things it is. Not the sermon, just is what it is. Um, when I was prepping for tonight, I fell in love with a word. I have a new favorite word right now. Ask me again in a week, it might be a different word, but right now, I have an absolute favorite word. It's a Hebrew word. Um, it looks like this. Anybody want to take a shot as to what Hebrew word that is? It is not Rakshazak. I heard somebody just sort of like, I don't even know, you just like, there was like a phlegm noise in the front. You're close, but no. Um, the, he, the Hebrew word is shalom. And you might have heard of that word. It's simply translated peace through the Old Testament. In most places that you hear the word peace. So if you're not a Bible nerd... Um, The Old Testament is written mostly in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and the New Testament is written in Greek. And so this Hebrew word, wherever you see the word peace in the Old Testament, you're typically looking at at shalom is the Hebrew word. In the the Greek, in the New Testament, it would be the Greek word irene. But those those two words are all over Scripture. So I knew it meant peace, and I liked the word peace. That means something to me. You know, the word peace. You do too. I mean, just that sense of serenity, right? But I didn't really know how a Jewish person thought about this word because it's not the way that you and I think about the word peace. As a matter of fact, they use the word shalom all the time. If they greeted each other on the road, the first thing they would say to each other is shalom, shalom, friend. That was the way they greeted each other. Peace, peace to you. And the same thing when they said goodbye, it was shalom and shalom. They wished peace upon the other person as they left. And so you're like, I don't know, we kind of do that too. I got friends who are like, peace as they leave. But it's like, you guys, it is not the same thing, okay, at all. Because to a Jewish person, to a Hebrew person, this word shalom carried with it a sense of I am right with God. That was one part of it. I think as I read about it, it seemed like there were three parts. One is I have peace with God. Like, spiritually, I am whole. As a matter of fact, I think wholeness might be a better English translation for this word shalom. Second part would be, I have peace with myself. 
there is a sense, like there's no inner conflict in me. Like this sense of I have a deep and lasting shalom in me. I am unified. I'm whole personally. And then also shalom carried a sense of peace with you, like with each other. Like when I look around horizontally at my other relationships that I have with friendships and other, there's, there's no conflict that's there. There's no, there's no difficulty or dissonance. There's just wholeness that sits vertically, like between me and God, inside of me, between me and myself, and horizontally when I look around me. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, think about a kind of peace, just absolute peace, where it's like, I know there is nothing I'm hiding from God. I know that there's nothing I'm trying to get away from or, or tuck down or ignore or, or in myself. And I know that there's nothing that is unresolved with you. That's shalom. That is a deep, deep shalom, a kind of peace. I was talking with somebody about that this week, and they were like, that sounds like heaven. I agree. I quite agree. Matter of fact, I think the, the garden, the first garden, the one that we see in Genesis 1, is a picture of perfect shalom. And I think the last garden, the one that we see in Revelation, that we're heading toward, is a picture of sweet shalom. Even, here's just a little bit of trivia for you. I found this. This is a verse that I absolutely love in Isaiah uh, 26. It says, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you and all whose thoughts are fixed on you. So if you've been tracking with me, you already know that the Hebrew for peace is shalom. I mean, if you were reading this in Hebrew, that word would be shalom in the Hebrew, the one that you saw originally. Here's what I love. Perfect peace in the Hebrew here, as it's written, is shalom, shalom, the peace of peace, the perfection of peace. We can't even really bring it into our language except calling it perfect peace. But what Isaiah is saying is you will have the shalom of shalom when we trust in God, when we, fixed, when we fix our eyes in him. Now, we're not studying Isaiah tonight, and we're not studying, uh, we're, we're not studying shalom, actually, but I wanted to talk about this on the front end because I want you to understand we're, we're actually going to be in Matthew 7 where Jesus has some hard words for us tonight. He has some hard instructions. And so as I was studying that, I stepped back from the study and I'm like, why? Why, does, why is Jesus asking us to do this? Because these words have an edge. They're a little bit sharp. I hope they sting tonight. They should or you're not listening to them. They've stung me as I've studied them. Um, but here's what I want you to understand. Jesus gives us these words because he's pushing us toward this. He wants to make you right with the Lord. He wants to make you right in your relationships with each other. He wants to give you a whole sense of self. Wholeness is what he's about. And so even when he has hard instructions to follow, he's pushing you that direction. All right. This is not a house you probably want to live in. All right, I just, picked, I just Googled a picture of dilapidated house, all right? This is what I found. Okay, do you know what you need to do to a house to get it in this state? Nothing. Nothing, you guys. If you do absolutely nothing with a home, if you move out of it and just let it be, this is what it turns into eventually. Well, hello. <laughs> Eventually, it looks like this. All right, that's what happens when you let a house just... I, I have some stuff going on at our house that needs fixed, okay? 
I got some stuff on our roof. I got some siding that needs painted. I've got all these little projects, and I constantly have a list of projects on our house. And if I just walk away from it, and I say, you know what, forget it, I'm doing nothing, that's fine. But the paint isn't just for color. The paint actually protects the wood from rotting. It creates a barrier, like a weather seal. And the shingles are certainly not there just for decoration, you guys. They keep the water out. And as soon as one little hole develops in those shingles and starts letting a little bit of water through, the wood beneath it starts to rot, and it gets weaker, and that hole gets bigger. And that just keeps happening. Eventually, the main beam that's in the house, as it's wet, starts to sag, and eventually it falls, and then the more shingles rip. And you guys, if you could fast forward a thousand years with doing nothing, that is just going to be a grass field. And if you walk through it, you might pick up a few shingles and be like, huh, wonder what these were from. Nature will just do its course. It'll just run its course. It'll do its thing. And I'm, I want to tell you tonight, what Christianity teaches about shalom is different than Eastern religions. It's different than other religions. In Zen Buddhism, for example, if you want to experience Zen, which is like the high spiritual state, right, of perfect peace within you, they would say, clear your mind of everything. Empty it of everything. If you can, as a matter of fact, if you think about something, you're muddying the waters. Don't do that. Empty. If you can absolutely clear a space, this is not what Jesus is teaching. This is not what Christianity is teaching. What we believe is that God himself is wholeness, but that this world is a fallen and broken place. Second law of thermodynamics. Anybody? Any you science people in the room? Entropy. Things move from order to chaos. There is decay that is present in our world. That's just the way it works, you guys. And so if I want this house to decay, if I walk away from it and come back to it 50 years later, I shouldn't be surprised that it's decayed. It shouldn't have gotten better. The house shouldn't look better in that amount of time to be like, man, the paint looks good. No, it doesn't, because we live in a world of decay. And this is the reality of every avenue of your life. Your friendships... If you do nothing, if you put nothing into them, this is what they look like. Your, yourself, I mean, like, you know physically. It's like if you do nothing, you understand physically what your body will do back to you, right? Like, you know the result of that. But it's the same in all of these different areas. If you choose nothing, then the decay takes over. And Jesus has given us all of these different beautiful teachings to help push back that decay to help push back what sin can do and eat in our lives and to push us toward shalom, toward this picture of wholeness that he's given for us. And I know it's taken me a while to get to my text, but I just want you to understand these sharp words exist in Scripture for a reason, and it's not just so you'll be really good rule followers. He's saying these sharp words are here because I want you to experience the whole kinds of friendships that you want but if you don't do anything, if you just expect that to come to you, if you expect other people to jump all of those hurdles and for you to do nothing, I want you to know this is what your spiritual life looks like when there's nothing. Thank goodness God partners with us, and this isn't all about our effort and our labor, all right? So don't hear that in this message. But I want you to understand that his instructions for us are good and beautiful because he is pushing us toward a beautiful form of shalom. As a matter of fact, I got to get this out there quick because I, I really got to get to the text or I'm not going to make it there tonight. But in Matthew, uh, in the Beatitudes, right at the beginning of Matthew 5, 
Jesus, when he's talking about all the different people who are blessed, remember he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And I've always found that little turn of phrase very interesting, that he doesn't say peacekeepers, right? He's not talking about people who just keep the peace. He's talking about people who make peace, which makes it sound like that's a little more, a little less passive and a little more active that I would intervene and be a peacemaker, someone who drags peacemaking into this world, someone who fights back the entropy and the decay through that. Well, in our passage tonight, I think we're going we're gonna to tackle it in three parts. The parables that Jesus gives us, there's three little sections and two parables, two short little parables that sit in it, come in Matthew 7. So let's read it together. It says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. So that's part one. And then he gives us these two little parables that that walk alongside of it parallel. He says, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye and then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what's holy. This is the second parable he gives us on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They'll trample the pearls, and then they'll turn and attack you. All right, let me pray over that text, and then let's dive in a little bit deeper together. Jesus, I pray that you just open our spiritual eyes tonight. Help us be attuned to what it is that you want to speak what it is that you want to say, how it is that you, Holy Spirit, want to convict. Uh, We have ears. Let us hear, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so in the beginning of this, looking at the first part here, let me take the others off here, don't judge others and you will not be judged. Maybe you've heard this in the King James form, which says, judge not lest ye be judged. That's become a cultural phrase, judge not lest ye be judged. Okay? And the interpretation of that is you have no business judging other people. You have no right to criticize. You have no right to discern. I mean, somebody comes to, I'm, if I'm letting my kids walk down the middle of the street and somebody's like, what are you doing? You can't let them, they're going to get hit by a car. I'm like, judge not lest you be judged, right? I throw that back at them. How dare you have an opinion on something that I'm doing right now? Judge not. Okay? That's the interpretation, which is quite, in fact, the wrong interpretation of this scripture. This has nothing to do with what Jesus is trying to get across here. That's the way our culture has grabbed it and run with it. Judge not, lest ye be judged. He's not saying in here that you, you can do your thing and people have to let you go. You know, that when we see other people living in harmful ways to themselves and others, that we don't have the right to say anything. So, I mean, let me give you an example just because I want to make this crystal clear. Because there's all kinds of discernments that we have to make all the time. If one of you came up to me and said, hey, one of the guys on your staff was like saying or doing some really inappropriate stuff with some of the girls in the ministry, all right? The response that you would get from me would not be, "Uh, judge not lest you be judged, all right? You would be irate and rightly irate if, if that was just dismissed and said, ah, oh, we don't have the right to judge other people, I'm sorry. And as a matter of fact, Scripture tells us through, I mean, I, I wrote down several, there are many 
First uh, John four one. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits of people to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Galatians six one. If anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore that person with a spirit of gentleness. Ephesians five eleven. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So you hear all of these different scriptures saying, hey, you're supposed to use discernment. You are supposed to use discernment to understand whether people's actions are wise or unwise. I would hope that if you were thinking about like a person to lead a group or to lead a church or to lead something that you'd be like, ah, I don't have the right to look into their character. It's like, (laughs) yes, you do, and you should. We should be discerning as followers of Jesus. And so Jesus is not saying in here that we shouldn't judge. Take a look at this passage from Paul. Oh, whoops, I forgot I had that in there. Judging and discernment are not the same thing. We're going to separate those two things and look at them as two, two separate things in this passage, okay? Paul to Timothy says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, okay? Hold that in your hand. Because this is what God, what uh, Jesus is talking about is not our business. He is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Are you hearing all of those things? He's saying all of those require discernment. All of those require making judgments. But who is the ultimate judge of the living and the dead? God himself is. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the works of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, who is who? The righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. So you see very cleanly in this passage, the reason why I chose this one is because side by side, you see Paul telling Timothy, I need you to be discerning. I need you to make judgments. But hey, remember who the ultimate judge is. I have to make discernments as a leader, but it is not mine to judge who you are in terms of your eternal security of hell or heaven. God is the one who makes those judgments. And before I think those judge robes belong on me, I have to remember that they don't. So when Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged, he is not saying we can't make discernments. He's saying that the ultimate judgment belongs to God himself. I didn't put these up in the display, but Isaiah 33, the Lord is our judge, our lawgiver, our king. Psalm 75, it is God who executes judgment. Romans 2.16, there'll be a day when God judges the secrets of men and women. So there is a huge difference between being a person's judge and making discernments. Let me throw one other thing out there, and I know I'm, I'm going like all fire hose right now on you, but There is also a difference between being discerning and having a critical heart, where we are just wandering around looking critically at every other person. Mother Teresa said, it's really, really hard to have time to love people when you're too busy judging them. That's the kind of critical heart we don't want to have. 
people's, where people's eternal destination is belongs in the hands of our Father, who is a beautiful judge. That's not up to me. Being every person's critic is not, that's not up to me. It is on me to make wise discernments. So that's the first part. That is the first part of what Jesus gives us here. And there's, a, there's another little piece there that I, I, I just don't have time to get into in this talk tonight where he's talking about the same measure that's, that you judge will be judged on you. I believe that what Jesus is talking about there is if you have no grace for other people, there's a really good chance that you haven't received grace. Forgiven people tend to forgive people. And so if you have no grace, if all you are is a critic for other people, you can expect that same standard to be applied to you because grace doesn't exist in your life to begin with. Would love to unpack that, but uh, we got to keep moving. All right, the second part. This is the part where Jesus uses hyperbole, which I love. He's talking about, hey, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you've got a log in yours? This is a great image, and if you didn't picture this as I was reading it, you need to, all right? Like, one of the dad duties in our house is splinter removal. I do not love it. It is not my favorite. Because sometimes they're super easy. They're just, like, standing on the skin. And sometimes one of the kids walks in, and he's like, Dad! And it is down there. And it's like, oh, this is going to hurt for everybody. Like, this, <laughs> this is not... And you tell them, oh, it's really not that bad. But you lie because you don't want them to know just how bad it is, it is going to be here in a moment. But you don't want it to get infected Splinters are really bad to leave in. They truly will. They'll get nasty. They'll hurt. They will swell. You run the risk of it turning into an abscess. So they got to come out, right? They got to come out. And the same is true relationally. Jesus is giving us this metaphor where it's like when we critique each other, it's like helping each other remove splinters. But he's saying, why are you trying to, to take a speck out of your friend's eye when there's like a two-by-four sticking out of yours? So you're walking around with this thing, and everybody knows it, that this gigantic plank is just stuck out of your face. And you're turning to other people being like, hey, can I get that out of your eye for you? It's like, no. I mean, it's ridiculous, but that's the point. That's why Jesus is telling the story. You've got a log stuck out of your face, and you're trying to help other people with the speck that's in your eye. So, again, this is culturally misappropriated a little bit, where people take this and they say, oh, we don't have the right to criticize other people. We don't have the right to bring criticism into other people's lives. We don't have the right to be discerning in that way, just like we just talked about. That is not the point of this. The point of this is that when we need to be discerning in another person's life, it begins with self-examination. You have got to ask the question about what's in your own eye before you have any business asking what's in someone else's. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's not about, again, your, your inability to discern or your inability to walk into that with another human being. It's about your ability to self-examine before you do that. We're really bad at this. You hear me? We're really bad at this. And here's why. Because when somebody wrongs me, there are things that I know in that situation, okay? I mean, like, this isn't a specific situation, but in any situation, there are pieces that you know. I know point A, I know point D, and I know point Q. There are a bunch of pieces that I don't know, conversations I haven't been a part of, what's going on in this person's life. And I fill those gaps in, and so do you. You know point A, and you, point, and you know point D, and you, so you assume 
You can fill in point B and C along the way, and you do, and you are great at it, and so am I. And we fill all of this stuff in with the wrong information until we have created our entire own narrative that we believe is rock solid and true, but we've done it either all in our own head or we've done it with a group of people who think just the exact same way that we do, which reinforces that same narrative until we just like build an absolute weapon to deliver against the other person. And Jesus is like, hey, how about before you go remove that speck from somebody else's eye that there's a process of self-examination that you start in that? Can I remind you where I started? Why are we doing this? Why would you go and have a, a, a meeting that, that, why would you have conflict with a roommate? Why would you walk into a meeting with conflict with a friend? For shalom. For shalom. Because it takes work. It takes work to have good, deep friendships. It takes work to challenge your own narrative. I'm going to repeat that. It takes work to challenge your own narrative, to let the Holy Spirit and other people challenge the narrative that you have created in your own head and say, you know what? This could actually be wrong. I'm submitting it to you, Lord. What do you think of this? Hey, other person that I feel like I'm in conflict with, this doesn't feel great. Help me understand it. Do you know what's crazy is often you realize that your narrative is wrong those motives that you ascribe to the other person, you might be a little correct, but you probably aren't fully correct. And suddenly there's a collaboration between you and the Lord is involved in that work and the submission and the humility that comes along with that and he transforms you. And it is a difficult meeting, but at the end of the meeting there is a different kind of friendship that emerges from it because you're stronger and you're not weaker. But it takes two parties who want shalom and who are willing to self-examine, to make that work. And that isn't everybody. Not everybody wants that. But it's worth the work. It's where shalom comes from. I'm telling you guys, shalom in a fallen world is sort of like pushing a boulder uphill, <laughs> all right? If you want good friendships, they will require that level, level of vulnerability and trust and honesty and self-examination to make them work. All right, I'm probably way off my notes here. Oh, I just, I, I threw this in here. Scripture, again, this isn't tonight's sermon. Scripture has a lot to say about actually how we go about confronting others. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 18, but let, I will just tell you in three very broad strokes. One would be this. It begins with what we're talking about right now, deep self-examination. That's where it begins. It doesn't begin with the other person. It begins with you, quietly, privately. Not you and nine other people, you. Just you and the Lord. From there, it goes to you and that other person, we're told in Matthew 18. You go and you quietly talk to that person in private. Why? Because when you go to your 11 friends and you get them all to side with you and then you have a meeting with someone where you're like, hey, I really think that you did this and so do these other 11 people. It's like, okay. If you ever, like, have somebody do that to you, I promise that you do, you do not respond in a spirit of collaboration, all right? It's like, let's go to war right now. I'm going to find my 11 friends, and then we're all going to be mad at each other. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. The spirit, in the spirit of shalom, it starts with self-examination. It moves to a private conversation, 
And if that can't solve the problem, it's still a semi-private conversation. He's like, then find three or four trusted witnesses to go with you, meaning impartial people who might tell you that you're wrong. That's how important shalom is to Jesus. Or he would, he would use the Greek, Irene. That's what, that's what he would use. But still, this, this idea when Jesus said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you, I don't give you this as the world gives to you, John 14. That's what he's, the reason why he's pushing you in Matthew 7 to think differently about this. Logs and eyes and specks. So the moral of this, of this little parable we've got here is, I have to be willing to question my own parable before I insert myself in someone else's story to help them that same way. And then we move to the last piece here, where he says, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. That's the parable. They'll trample the, ter- the pearls, and then they will turn to attack you. What Jesus is simply saying here is, just because you have wisdom doesn't mean you have to share it everywhere. You are not just a fire hose that walks around spraying other people with your wisdom, and you're like, what? I was right. It's not my big, it's not on, it's not on me if they don't receive it, all right? Um, part of being wise, part of living a wise life, again, part of this push towards shalom is understanding when and how to share that wisdom, And Jesus is saying there's a time and place where you actually choose not to share that wisdom. That's part of discernment. That's a rough one. That's a rough one. Why? Because social media, I come from from the past, my friends. I come from a time before the digital age, all right, where when you wanted to share opinions, it had to be in person, okay? In your age, what you have grown up knowing as digital natives Every one of you has been handed a megaphone, and so has your grandma, all right? And everybody's opinions now are just blasted at high volume about everything. This is what I think about this celebrity. This is what I think about this coach's decision with this sports team. This is what I think that they should do this year to beat this team. This is what I think about this political party. This is what I think about the mayor of this town. It's like all of these opinions go, I mean, Facebook's the worst one of all of them, all right? I mean, but all of them carry this idea of, hey, how interesting is my opinion to everybody? How interesting must my opinion be? Jesus is challenging that. He's actually saying, seek wisdom and seek understanding and be cautious where you share it. If you see two people who are wrong, but they just really want to win an argument, and I, I Maybe you're principled like me, because sometimes it's real. I, I want to die on every hill, you guys. That's the way that God wired me. It's not good sometimes, okay? And I made a rule for myself early on with social media. Oh, I, God helped me make a rule early on in social media, because I would see two people arguing, and I'd be like, oh, I have, wait till the world sees my opinions, everybody. And then in my head, I, I felt like the Lord would lead and say, hey, if you aren't willing to send this as a private message, don't type it. And I'd be like, I'm not. And so there's some conviction there in how do I live toward shalom? Well, if you are just an opinion-spraying machine, shalom isn't going to be a part of your life. Let me share with you a verse that was an absolute punch to the stomach for me as a 20-something young man. Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. Proverbs 18.2. 
man, if that doesn't sting, you aren't paying attention. Because that described me to a T. I thought wisdom was having the right opinions and making sure everybody knew I had the right opinions. And God was like, no, 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 no. No, 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 that's the definition of a fool, making sure everybody hears your opinion. And so Jesus is saying, hey, pay attention where you throw your pearls. That's your wisdom. Develop wisdom. Seek understanding. You should desire understanding, but be careful where you place it. Maybe actually look for situations where people need it or requesting it. One of the most difficult seasons of our ministry was four years ago during the Trump-Biden election year, you guys. Truly. Because, because there's differing opinions in the room. And there are people who feel strongly about those. Uh, and I want to tell you this, just as a warning for the coming year, if you desire for shalom to be a part of who you are, you are going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to turn some voices off in your life that are going to try to push you to do things, to vote about things, only out of fear. There are going to be voices that tell you, if you don't do this now, like right now, the world's going to change completely. Do it. Do it right now. And it's going to be tempting because you're going to see people giving in to that fear around you. And again, I'm not fighting on one side of the aisle or the other side of the aisle. I'm telling you, as a Jesus follower, our shalom sits in something different as a righteous judge who sits above all of that stuff, all right? He, for thousands of years, he has served as the king, and we will be okay. And Jesus is telling you, if you want shalom, be cautious about the wisdom that you give and the wisdom that you receive. Don't cast your pearls to pigs. And I would add to Jesus' Jesus's words, be wise about the wisdom you take in how many outlets you are allowing into your life that are pouring those voices into your world. Jesus, in his love for you, I'm going to come back to this. Shalom. Jesus, in his love for you, is giving you some instructions in these parables on how to chase peace with him, with each other, and with yourself. And I'm hoping that sometime this week you have a chance to come back to that verse in Isaiah 26.3. Perfect peace. A kind of perfect, a shalom, shalom for those who fix their eyes on him, who trust his voice, who listen to him. I want that for you. Because I got to tell you guys, shalom is worth fighting for. I don't want your house to decay. I don't want you 50 years from now to realize by you not paying attention and just letting the world do what it does and letting decay take its form that any part of your life is dilapidated old and just about to fall apart. If you stand, I want to pray a prayer of shalom over you before we worship. Jesus, thank you that you serve as a righteous judge, that that isn't my seat it's not what I need to do, but that you have called me to use discernment in this world. Lord, thank you that you've reminded me that I need to self-examine before I have the right to help anyone else with the speck in their eye. Help us to become experts in self-examination, Lord. And thank you for helping us understand how and where to share wisdom. 
Holy Spirit, would you give us uh, just real discernment in how to practice that, especially in the next 10 months. And we love you, Lord. We commit tonight to you. Thank, thank you for every soul in this space. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.